But tonight we continue our series on 1 Peter, Hope in a World that is Not Our Home. That's the title of the series, and tonight I want to talk to you about smiling through suffering. I'll explain that title to you in just a moment, but I want you to take your Bibles, if you haven't already, open to the book of 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. Uh, the last couple of weeks, we've kind of slowly walked through some of First Peter. We, in the first week, we did kind of an overview of the book, and then uh, last week, we just looked at two verses. Tonight, we're going to pick up the pace quite a bit, and we're going to cover a lot more uh, of the text. And as we look at the text tonight, looking at chapter 1, verses 3 through 12, I want to talk to you about smiling through suffering. I hope that you've got an outline. I've provided those wherever you came in. I hope you grabbed one. Uh, but let me tell you where I got that title. I actually borrowed that title uh, from an outline from uh, Chuck Swindoll's commentary on First Peter. Um, and as I was doing some thinking and researching, reading, etc., I realized that people smile through their pain for a lot of reasons. Uh, people can smile in, in, in their suffering for lots of reasons. Some do it perhaps to save face in social settings. That, you know, they're, they're going through a lot, but they don't want you to know that and and they put on a brave face and try to put a smile on their face to kind of act like everything is okay in social settings. Other times, people will smile even though they're suffering to reassure those loved ones around them that it's going to be okay. And they, you know, they try to reassure their wife or reassure their kids or reassure their husband that it really is okay. And they try to prove that by the smile on their face. Occasionally, we smile to convince ourselves everything is going to be okay. We look in the mirror and we smile and, and we try to have that stiff upper lip and try to say it's going to be okay and we try to convince ourselves that that's true. You know, finding the will to greet your suffering with a smile is no easy task, especially when really deep inside what you want to do is cry or you want to complain or maybe you just don't want to get out of bed. And that's where the words of 1 Peter chapter 1 come into play. In those moments when it seems almost impossible to smile because of what you're dealing with, Peter gives us five reasons that every Christian can smile even in suffering. Now, let me, I want to pause there and talk about that title for just a second. I am not suggesting that we somehow downplay the problems that you're having. I am not suggesting that, you know, you just need to uh, just act like it's okay. I'm not, you know, when you lose your job because you tried to maintain your integrity and they fired you over that, or when you have cancer, or when you uh, lose a spouse to death, or, or your spouse walks out on you, those are not the things, the times that you normally smile. You don't normally smile in those kind of situations of, heartache and loss and that kind of thing. Nor am I say, saying that with the title, Smiling Through Suffering, I'm not saying that you should just grin and bear it. That's not what the title means. Does it mean grin and bear it? What we're talking about is this. We're talking about smiling through suffering because you realize there is more to life than the heartache you're going through now. That there's something better ahead you. And even in the midst of heartache and in the midst of trials and in the midst of suffering, Peter is going to make the case, and remember who he's talking to. Peter is talking to people who are actually being persecuted for their faith. 
they likely are losing their homes because of their faith. They likely can't get a job because of their faith. Or their loved ones have been put in jail because of their faith. Or they've been beaten because of their faith. Peter is talking to people who, knows, who, who knew what it was like to pay a, a price for being a Christian. Those, that's the crowd he's writing to. And he writes to them, essentially, he wouldn't call it this, but he writes to them essentially about smiling through suffering. Or maybe having a different perspective. So, I want to give you five reasons based on the scripture. On why we can smile through suffering. Or perhaps you could say it this way. Five reasons you and I can have a better perspective. When we're living in hard times. Alright? So let's look at that. Here's, I hope you have the outline. Follow with me and fill it in as we go. First, first reason is this. We have a living hope. It's interesting that Peter opens the letter with this point in verse 3. That we have a living hope. In spite of the persecution that these first century Christians were enduring, Peter quickly emphasizes the hope that they have through Jesus Christ. Look at verse 3. He says, Praise be to the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In His great mercy, He has given us... Now notice this phrase, He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. This idea of hope, it really is a key uh, thought in this chapter and in the whole book, but but in this chapter especially, he keeps emphasizing, at the very first part of this book, he keeps, keeps emphasizing this idea of hope, that we, because we're believers in Christ, we have hope, and he calls it a living hope. Let me show you some other places in this chapter. Verse 13. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Be self-controlled. Set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. Or verse 21 of, of the first chapter. Through Him you believe in God who raised Him from the dead and glorified Him. And so your faith and hope are in God. See, this is not just hope. But this is hope in God. This is what the reason Peter calls it a, a living hope. Because there is, watch this, I, I just want to walk around so badly so I'm going to get up. There is this idea that there's a, a future dimension to our hope. Peter's not talking about hope just right now in this world. He's talking about a future dimension to our hope. That we as believers in Jesus Christ, we have a future dimension to our hope. He explains it in verse 4. Let's read verse 4. And into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade, kept in heaven for you. You see, in the Bible, hope is not wishful thinking. In the Bible, it is the firm conviction based on two things. Put this in your notes. It's based on the promises of God and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Regardless of what we endure in life, we as believers can have hope because of the promises of God and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And both of those things are stressed in this chapter. Can I show you from the Word of God from chapter 1 why you and I have a living hope? Can I explain to you, if I can, why we have a living hope? There's two reasons. We have a living hope because, first of all, our hope is grounded in the living Word of God. Peter tells us that in chapter 1, verse 23. Look what he says. For you have been born again, 
Not of perishable seed, but of imperishable. Through the living and enduring word of God. You have a living hope because your salvation came from the living word of God. The living word, the the word of God that, that gives life. Peter says that's where your hope is grounded. Your hope is not grounded in a some kind of a theory. Your hope is not grounded in some kind of philosophy, an empty philosophy. Your hope is grounded not just in the Word of God. He calls it the living Word of God. It is alive. It's real. Not only is our hope grounded in the living Word of God, but our, it's a living hope because it's also made possible by the living Son of God. Look at chapter 1. We read verse 3. Let's read it again from this perspective. Praise be to the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In His great mercy, He has given us new birth into a living hope. And watch this. Into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Peter is emphasizing that we have a living hope because it was made possible by the living Son of God. Or I can say it to you this way. We have a living hope because we have a living Savior. Can I get an amen on that one? We have a living hope because we have a living Savior and our faith is grounded in the living Word of God. You see, time destroys most hopes, doesn't it? Over time, hopes fade. They often then die. But the passing of time does not affect the hope we have. In fact, it's just the opposite. The passing of time enhances the hope we have. I don't know about you, but the older I get, the more I long for heaven. The older I get, the, the more heaven means to me. The passing of time does not diminish my hope. The passing of time has increased it. God has proven He can provide us eternal life because Jesus came up out of the grave. So here's the first thing. We can smile through suffering because we too will be raised like Jesus in glorified bodies and we will dwell in a new heaven and a new earth for eternity. Peter says, listen, you can smile in suffering because after this life is over, yes, you may be experiencing suffering now, but after this life is over, you've got a place in heaven that God has prepared for you and your faith is based on the living Word of God and it's guaranteed by the living Son of God. Therefore, you have living hope regardless of what you're living through. I like that. You can have living hope regardless of what you're living through. Second reason we can have, we can smile in suffering is this. We have a permanent inheritance. Verse 4, Peter really doesn't describe our inheritance. All he can tell us about is what it's not. Our, what, what our inheritance actually is is probably beyond human comprehension. So he tries as best he can to describe this inheritance we're going to get that we would call heaven. Peter looks at this and he says, well, I can't exactly tell you what it is, but let me tell you what it's not. And he describes it this way, verse 4, into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you. Peter says, let me tell you what it's not. That, that is, it will never perish. This inheritance that God is providing you, it will never perish. Put this on your notes. That means nothing can ruin it. Never perish. Nothing can ruin it. He says it also will never spoil. It is not subject to decay. Not subject to decay. 
and, and he says it will never fade, that means it will never grow old because it is eternal. It will never grow old. And then I like this. He says in verse 4, and it is kept in heaven for you. Some translations may translate that word kept this way, reserved. Anybody have that in your translation, reserved in heaven for you? You do? Okay. I love that translation. It's reserved in heaven for you. You ever go into a restaurant and had reservations? It's kind of a good feeling, isn't it? You walk up to the, to the whatever that thing is at the front of the restaurant. What is that? All right. Well, yeah, you go to that person. And you say, hey, we have reservations, shorter, party of two. And they look, yes, Mr. Shorter, we, we've got you down. I mean, it's just, it's just a pretty good feeling to know that I've got a table. It's reserved for me. Peter says, let me tell you something far, far better than that. Uh, this inheritance that you have in heaven is kept. It is reserved for you. It says what? Beyond the reach of change. That's good. Let me give you a little Greek lesson real quick. That word kept or reserved in the Greek language is in the perfect tense. You might, I don't think there's a place on your notes, but you might want to write that in. It's in the perfect tense, and it indicates that our inheritance has already been put into safekeeping. It's, already, it's not like it's going to be reserved. It's already been put in safekeeping. And it continues to be in safekeeping. That's the... That is the perfect tense. It has been put into safekeeping and it continues to be put in safekeeping. Now, I want you to compare verses 3 and 4 with me real quickly. In verse 3, he's talking about the now. He's talking about the present time. He says, in the now, praise be to the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In His great mercy, He has given us new birth now in the present time into a living hope. But in verse 4, he's referring to the future. And into an inheritance that can never perish full or fade, kept in heaven for you. So he talks about this idea that we have this inheritance. He talks about now, you, you've been given this, this wonderful gift by God. And then in the future, there's going to be this place kept in heaven, reserved in heaven for you. And so put this on your notes. We can smile through suffering because there is something better ahead. That's what he's saying in the verses 3 and 4. There is something better ahead. And I really like verse 5. So the third point, how can we smile through suffering? Number three, we have divine protection. Here's a, the third reason that we smile through suffering. We have divine protection. Would you look with me in verse 5? <clears throat> Who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that, that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Now, I, I just want you to listen. I'm going to read that verse again from the NIV, and then we'll read it from two other translations. And I want you to listen to see if you see any key words being repeated in those translations. Talking about we have divine protection. Here's what it says in the NIV. Who through faith are shielded by God's power. New American Standard says, who are protected by the power of God through faith. The Living Bible says, and God in His mighty power will make sure that you get there safely to receive it because you are trusting in Him. If you listen very carefully, you probably saw that there really are two aspects to the perseverance of Christians. 
he talks about in that verse about we're shielded by God's mighty power and by our faith. Those are the two things. I think there's some blanks there on your notes. Shielded by God's power and by his or her own faith. That we're talking now about the perseverance of Christians. And the tense of the verb, kept or shielded, emphasizes that we're constantly being shielded. We're constantly being guarded. One of the reasons that we can smile through suffering is because we are not depending on our strength to get us to heaven. We're, depending on, we're not depending on our strength to keep us on the right path. But rather, we're dependent on His power and His faithfulness. Look at the text again in verse 5. Who, are, who through faith, that's our response, who through faith are shielded by God's power. And so the perseverance of the Christian really depends on those two things. God's power and my faith in Him. Those two things go together. And, but here's what I want you to see. Sometimes people say, Pastor, do you believe in the eternal security of the believer? Absolutely I do. I don't tell you why I do. Verse 5 is an example of why I believe in the security of the believer. It's because our security is not dependent upon us. Our security is dependent upon His power. Look at the text again, verse 5. Who through faith are shielded, protected by God's power. And how long are we protected? Look at the verse. How long are we protected? Until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. You see, the one who is all-powerful and all-loving and all-knowing holds our salvation in His sovereign hands. And we are shielded and we are protected. We can smile in suffering, though it is a hard time. We know that our Heavenly Father is still holding on to us. And our lives are in His sovereign, loving, all-knowing, all-powerful hands. Death may destroy our outward bodies. But God, is, God has promised to protect our souls for all eternity and to give us a glorified body. So we can smile through suffering because God protects those that are His. God protects those that are His. Number four, we can smile, smile through suffering because we have a growing faith. Verses six and seven. Verses 6 and 7 are very important in this text. And I've given you some blanks, four truths about trials. I want to read verses 6 and 7. And then I want to show you these four truths about trials and a growing faith. He says in verse 6, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief and all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. As we look at these two verses, there are four things about suffering and trials that I want to point out to you. And here's the first one. Suffering and joy can be experienced simultaneously. That is such an important statement. I want you to make sure you get that. Suffering and joy can be experienced simultaneously. You say, where do you get that, Pastor? If you look in verse 6, 
in this you greatly rejoice. You see that phrase? Paul or Peter is talking about these people who are going through persecution and trials. He says, you are greatly rejoicing. And look what he says. Though now for a little while you may have to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. You see, faith and suffering are not mutually exclusive. Peter doesn't tell his readers that, listen, if you'll just hang on, God's going to bring reprieve and He's going to reward you with worldly comfort. That's not what Peter says. Rather, he makes it clear that suffering and joy can coexist. That's the walk of faith. That even in the midst of suffering, there can be joy. And watch this. And sometimes even in the midst of joy, there will be suffering. They can coexist. And in many ways, they should coexist. And so he says, in this you greatly rejoice, that you're, you're rejoicing, even though now for a little while you've suffered grief in all kinds of trials. The second po- point about trials is this one. Trials are distressing, painful, and difficult. Are distressing, painful, and difficult. Not good, delightful, or easy. And the reason it's important that we say that is because I don't want to take lightly what some of you are going through or facing. In fact, Peter uses some pretty powerful words when he talks about suffering grief. That you suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These are not lightly used words. Suffer grief in all kinds of trials. I want you to hear something to hear, hear me clearly. From the very beginning of the church, just read your Bibles. From the very beginning of the church, from the earliest days of the church in the book of Acts, Christians have always faced opposition. They've always faced suffering. And we would be naive to expect it to be anything else. Just because we live in Powdersville in South Carolina in the United States of America does not mean we're somehow exempt from trials and suffering. The trials and suffering are very real, and some of you know that, and you're experiencing it right now. And it is distressing, and it is painful, and it is difficult. They are varied trials. They're very diverse trials. They come in different forms at different times, different durations, but they are very, very difficult. So when we're talking about smiling through suffering... I don't want to just emphasize smiling. I want to recognize, yes, sometimes we suffer, don't we? There's no good explanation for it. There's no easy fix. Sometimes we suffer, and it's painful, and it hurts. And it's hard to understand, and it's hard to deal with. But the whole point that Peter is writing about here is even in the midst of that very real, very painful, difficult time, you can experience God's joy. Joy and suffering coexist for the Christian. It brings us to number three, the reason for trials or the lessons from trials. Number three is this. God allows hardship into our lives for the sake of testing and maturing our faith. Verse seven. These have come so that your faith Notice the phrase, your faith. Not, not just faith in general, not the faith of your neighbor. Sometimes these trials are targeted for your faith. 
These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Years ago when I was in seminary, a pastor taught me this phrase. I've never forgotten it. It's been a long time ago. But he said, a faith that cannot be tested cannot be trusted. A faith that cannot be tested cannot be trusted. If you look at the words in verse 7, that your faith may be proved genuine. See that? That your faith may be proved genuine. Just like gold is heated and the impurities float to the top so it can be skimmed off, trials and struggles and persecutions are intended to demonstrate that your faith is genuine and to make your life more useful to God. Sometimes the reason for the trials, sometimes the reason for the struggles, it's about your faith. Developing, maturing, improving your faith. The fourth comment about trials is this. Trials are controlled by God. Trials are controlled by God. Now, what I mean by that, they do not last forever. Peter says they last for a little while. Now, can we agree that a little while is, is, is different? Your little while might be different from my little while. Your little while might be three months. My little while might be three years. But compared to eternity... It's a little while, right? Compared to where we're going and what we're going to experience, it's always a little while. When God permits His children to go... somebody I didn't, This is not original with me. I'm not sure who said this. But He said, when God permits His children to go through the furnace, He keeps His eye on the clock and His hand on the thermostat. That's pretty good. The trials that Peter is writing about here, though, can I be real clear about this? The trials that Peter is re- referencing here are not natural disasters. The trials that Peter is referencing here are, are not God's punishments. The trials that Peter is talking about here are the, response, the responses of the unbelieving world to the people of faith. That's the kind of trials he's referring to. It's not, well, a tornado came through your community. It's not that kind of trial or suffering. It's not, well, you know, some really bad happened. No, it's not that. It's the trials are the trials that come about because of your faith in Christ and the unbelieving world responding to your faith. Peter's writing to give a warning and encouragement that you will face opposition, but every time you face opposition, it is an opportunity to demonstrate your faith in Jesus Christ. Because of the sacrifice of Jesus, our hardships are temporary, but our hope is eternal. There's no place to write that down, but uh, you might want to write it in the column. Because of our relationships with Jesus, our hardships are temporary, but our hope is eternal. That's what Peter is emphasizing. Our hope is not rooted in our circumstances. Our hope is rooted in the unchangeable faithfulness of God. That's why he says what he says in verses 8 and 9. Though you have not seen him, you love him. 
Speaking of Jesus, and even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy, for you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Our faith is rooted and grounded in the unchanging faithfulness of God. All right, so we're talking about smiling through suffering. We've looked at four things. The fifth one is in some ways my favorite. Just because it's, it's kind of unique what Peter talks about. I'm really not sure of any other place in the Bible where the author of Scripture or anywhere else in the Bible talks about this very issue. This is unique to Peter and maybe unique to the New Testament. So, so I'm giving you four. Here's the fifth way or the fifth reason rather that we smile through suffering as believers. And here's number five. Number five is this. We have a unique, a unique vantage point. We have a unique vantage point. You say, what do you mean by that? Well, Peter shifts gears from the future and the present to revisit the past, and he goes far into the distant past, beginning in verse 10. Concerning the salvation, the prophets. Now, when he says the prophets here, he's talking about the Old Testament prophets, like Jeremiah and Isaiah. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and the circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you. When they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, even angels long to look into these things. Now, let's kind of dig into that for just a few minutes before we close. Peter writes about the Old Testament prophets who prophesied back in their day about the grace that had now arrived in Peter's day. So make sure you get that in your mind. Old Testament prophets prophesying in their time about the grace of God that would be displayed and was displayed in Peter's time. And Peter says that we, writing to these believers, he says we have a unique advantage point that the Old Testament prophets did not have. And if the people in the first century had a unique advantage point that the prophets did not have, we in Powdersville certainly have a unique advantage point that the Old Testament prophets did not have. We can look back through the Scripture and see Christ's life and His miracles. We can look back and read about the teachings of Jesus in the New Testament. We can see His saving death and resurrection as we read Scripture. We can read His words and His promises. We can read the book of Acts and we can see how the church has grown and developed and spread in spite of, in spite of persecution. And all of that should give us confidence that our God keeps His promises. And that the gospel is real. It should help us understand the whole concept of salvation in the gospel. But the Old Testament prophets had a lot less than that to go on. They were looking forward and they could not see all that we now see. That's the point Peter's making. Look at verse 10 and 11 again. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently with the greatest care trying to find out the time and the circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing 
when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. Let me pause for a moment. Just to those of you who are with us on Sunday nights, we're talking about Christ in the Old Testament. Did you see that reference? He talks about the Spirit of Christ speaking to the Old Testament prophets. Notice that the prophets saw essentially two things. Look, look what the, the Old Testament prophets saw. Trying to find, verse 11, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted, watch this, the sufferings of Christ and the glories that could follow. That's going to get interesting if you'll stay with me. Put that on your notes. The sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. The Old Testament prophets, if I'm understanding the writings of Peter correctly, the Old Testament prophets, as they were writing about this grace that was to come, this salvation that God was revealing to them through the Holy Spirit, they essentially understood two things. The sufferings of Christ and the glory that would come after. Now, if you've ever driven through East Tennessee... Uh, you probably have noticed some very beautiful mountain ranges. In East, in East Tennessee, and if you've been to Gatlinburg and all that kind of thing, you, you've seen what they call the Blue Ridge Mountains. And it's just, I grew up in East Tennessee, and I, I love the mountains for that very reason. When I went to my, my high school, Science Hill High School, and uh, behind our high school, you could look across the city, and you see the mountains in the background. I, I've just grown up with that. So I, I just have this absolute love for mountains. But what I've noticed, especially up around Irwin, Tennessee, when, when you're driving on the highway and, and you're heading towards the mountains, you're about, to, you know, you're about to go over to North Carolina, and you see the mountains in the distance, and you can see a mountain range, and you see another one behind it. And sometimes you'll see a third one even behind that. And they're beautiful. You know, they're different shades of blue. And you can see this mountain range, and, a, and let's just say two. You see this mountain range and, a, and another one behind it. And from that perspective, the mountain ranges look close. They just look so close together. What you don't see from that perspective is that there's a valley between those two mountain ranges. A huge valley between those mountain ranges. That's kind of what the Old Testament prophets were looking at. As they were looking into the future by the Spirit of God, they could essentially see two mountains. They could see Golgotha, the place where the sufferings of Christ, the death of Christ. They could see that one. And then they could see the glories, it says, that would come later. Perhaps the Mount of Olives. Because the glory was where Christ will come down and when he returns, and he will come in all of his glory when he touches that mountain. So looking into the future, the Old Testament prophets, they didn't have a clear picture of God's full plan. They saw, saw as it was his death, and they saw his glory. What they didn't see very well was the range or the valley between those two. His death and his glory. They didn't notice, they didn't know. They tried, it says in verse 10, or verse 11, uh, Verse 10, I'm sorry. They searched intently with the greatest of care. They searched intently with the greatest of care. They were trying to figure it all out. All they could sense, all they could see, all they knew was, was the idea of his death, his suffering, 
and His glory. What they did not see was the valley, of course, in between, which was the the present church age. And in that present church age, that's where we're now living. And Peter's making the interesting point that the prophets didn't fully grasp what they were writing, though the Holy Spirit was revealing it to them. They obediently wrote, but they realized, I like, he'll say it, we'll read it in verse 12, they realized that the words they were writing were for a future time. Look how he says it in verse 12. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves. In other words, this message was not for them. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, when they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. And then he makes this phrase, he says this phrase, even angels long to look into these things. Even angels trying to figure it out. Even angels long to look into what we have experienced. What we now know from revelation. Revelation of God. Even angels long to look into those things. And figure it out. I would say to you, if angels marvel at the hope that we have in Jesus Christ, maybe we should marvel too. And so if you flip your page over and go to the front again. There's a little side column I put on your notes tonight. And this will summarize everything that we've talked about. And here's my summary. We can smile through our suffering here because salvation is our reality there. So why didn't you just say that at the beginning? We could save a lot of time. (laughs) We can smile through our suffering here because salvation is our reality there. That's how you live in the world that's not your home. Because salvation is our ultimate reality. Can I get an amen on that one? It's our ultimate reality. Let's thank you for that. Father, thank you that even the angels marvel at the hope we have. Even angels marvel that we have this relationship with you made possible through the death of your Son, the Lord Jesus. And God, I pray for any, any person here tonight or perhaps watching online who suffering is a very real reality right now. Trials are a very real reality in their family, in their home. I, I pray that they'll understand that yes, the reality is real and the trial is hard, but remind us what we have in you. And remind us that that there is something better for us ahead. Suffering is a reality here, but salvation is a reality there. May we focus on your goodness to us. And even as we recognize how much we are loved, as we recognize all that you've done for us, as we recognize that you have provided for us something that the angels long to look into, then may we smile in our suffering as our salvation becomes more and more a reality to us. We thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.